Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. Howdy, Terry. Hello, Yoni. <laughs> so, we have an interesting topic today, and I, I want you to give a... Dis- if you're going to say howdy to me, I guess I'll just say shalom to you, right? I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in Central Oregon. So, you know, yeah. the, the most sophisticated somebody was growing up in Central Oregon wasn't hipster, it was hickster, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and so the concept of howdy, I, I know plenty of cowboys. I mean, this is the Wild West after all, right? Yeah, <laughs> different so, kind of wild these days, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, y'all is part of a regular conversational piece where I grew up, so I, Howdy is not that out of line. I guess being a city slicker now, I should adopt my terminology, but I don't want to. Well, I was being facetious, of course. It doesn't really go nearly as deep as Shalom, needless to say. Shalom's a complicated one. I mean, there's so many semiotics involved with that that just blows my mind. Because Shalom is a word we can say, but we also recognize that it's not only an attribute of God, but one of God's names. And so we have to be careful in the circumstances in which it's used to not, you know, blaspheme. So it, it, it's interesting because for us, we, we are very careful not to say any of God's names in vain. That's why when you read in Torah, you have the Tetragrammaton. And we'll, we'll recite it back as Yudke Vavke, even though there's actually haze in there. But we pronounce it differently than that. And then just, just on an extra level of caution, if we're not active in prayers or reading from Torah, we won't use that pronunciation that's a substitute. We'll have a substitute for the substitutes, which is Hashem, which means the name. Right. Okay. And so you'll find that um, Orthodox Jews, observant Jews, will often, you know, Hashem this, Hashem that, Hashem this, Hashem that. And that's because that's our substitutes. And it's, it's very easy for us because then it's not, well, whose God are we talking about? So... Right. Which isn't yeah. as much of an issue in today's society, but back when there was a lot of rampant paganism, the, the concept of whose God was a very big issue. Sure, yeah. yeah. Every tribe in the Old Testament had a different pantheon, or at least a God, or a different pantheon of gods. Yeah, yeah. that was very the interesting. The the Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads us to today. Okay. Uh, not all the way to our conversation today, but close enough. Uh, our conversation today being the hot topic of the past eight months, nine months maybe. I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's going to become more of a hot topic as we get closer to the latter part of it. But our conversation is face masks and vaccines. And I want to narrow this down. We're not talking flu vaccine or, ter- or, or any of the 80 vaccines that your kid gets within three years. I, there, there's plenty of hot topic enough with that for other people i I want us to focus more on the COVID 19 issue and i we had discussed this being a topic and we had we've been planning for this being a topic for a few weeks now and i'm going to so that everybody is crystal clear like a good show to watch if you want to be scared is utopia um i i was fortunately able to access that via VidAngel, but I finished it last night, which is probably going to have some influence on our conversation because the 
and there are spoilers here so if you, if you don't like spoilers i guess you need to hit pause go watch the time episodes and come on back but the the spoilers is that the whole thing the plot of the first season is about creating a pandemic so that people freak out and want a vaccine and then the vaccine doesn't actually treat the pandemic because the pandemic can be nullified the vaccine is actually used to sterilize everybody who gets the vaccine for three generations to deal with the overpopulation thing because as as the way um John Cusack's character puts it he says that if there's 1 billion people on earth you can live as extravagant as you want it can be a wonderful life but when there's 10 billion people everything you do has a massive consequence and so the concept of having 7 billion now if if there was no birth for three generations we go down to 1 billion it, it brought up this conspiracy theory concepts but it's also a little scary because when they were making the show covid was not a part of their conversation yeah <laughs> so i have to i have to inject a footnote here just kind of to keep in mind we're having this conversation on november 3rd which is circus 2020 grand finale election day so yes. and since this covid and vaccine and face masks and all of that and and the utopia story are all taking place on the, we're going to be talking about all that on this day mm-hmm. it's important i think we don't need to talk about it at any length but it's maybe mentioned in passing when there's a clear connection that that's on the ballot <laughs> people are voting about that as they fill out their mail-ins or drop them off or go to the polls that's re- going to be reflected in the ballot implicitly so just kind of i just kind of want to put that little asterisk on our conversation there but yeah i watched utopia uh, on uh, amazon i think amazon prime and so we got a less um focused story focused version than you did on vid agent we got a lot of the um promotional uh there i say even propaganda material that is in the full length version that was probably stripped out in vid angel but it was for the better but yeah it was a fascinating story it was a fascinating story and uh how do you want to kick it off well <clears throat> first off in regards to that show it So if 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 you if you have the ability to watch the show I think it's amazing and you should. I mean the the semiotics is a bit uh shot I guess I'd say is literal and easy to see because they really focus on oh how can we interpret this page how can we interpret this image what's going on behind the scenes and it's like hitting the hammer just you hitting the nail with that hammer so many times in a row it's like okay I get it already you're trying to understand the text but really that's the core of semiotics but with everyday life and with every text And so I think that naturally applies to our show and I think it's a great thing for people to watch. Um I personally um have made the decision to try to not subject myself to a lot of content that is um antithetical to how I want to live my life. So foul language, sexuality, violence, those types of things I've tried to dial it down and not be part of that anymore. And so one of the ways that we're able to do that is by using vidangel because it has filters and it works with Netflix and Amazon and right now it's free. And so 
it was able to filter out all the junk of Utopia so I could get the story without the language or nudity or any of those things. I don't even know if there was nudity. I know there was language because there's plenty of beauty. Um, it was it was mild. I mean, but the point is still valid that those are what I would think of as the subliminal semiotics. You know what I mean? They work on you yeah. subliminally unless you're attuned you know to recognize their effect as they're happening which is can be done but it's not easy you know it's like subliminally you're looking at the picture on the back of my wall here of that uh, methuselah tree around crater lake in oregon yeah but it's not something you're thinking about until i mention it and call attention to it right uh, the same unless token. you're me who notices it all the time and has a story to go with it <laughs> you do see it a lot yeah you do see it a lot you're, it's always there this is always where i am and the scenery never changes <laughs> i ought to work on that uh get my son-in-law to help me turn this room into an actual studio wouldn't that be something anyway yeah. um moving on from the utopia topic uh on the notion of covid and where things are with the vaccine, I'll be quite honest with you. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I'm an anti-vaxxer, but one of my favorite philosophy titles of all time was a paper written in the early 20th century that I could look up pretty quickly. It could be Googled pretty quickly because the title of the paper is just brilliant. The title of the paper is something along the lines of, a philosopher's last line of defense is his skin. And that's that's a very profound idea when you stop and think about it, because it doesn't matter how much philosophizing you do when it comes to living your life, that ends and begins at your skin, <laughs> yeah. so metaphorically at least. So with that in mind, taking it almost literally, I don't dispute the value of vaccines across the board, you know, that every one of them is a nefarious plot to turn you into a Manchurian candidate for the state. You know, I don't go that crazy. I will say that the number of vaccines that I had to have in 1949 to 19, six years later, you know, 1955, when the polio and all of those were finishing up with the sugar cubes, I will say that those, I, if I had any ill effects from them, I'm not aware of them. That doesn't mean they weren't there. But I did come down with polio. I didn't know anyone who did. Actually, I did know one person who had it. But I didn't. And I had the mumps and the, you know all the others. And when I traveled overseas with Wycliffe Associates, uh, that was actually earlier in the 2000s. When I did that, I had the whole round of, of you know, antibiotics and vaccines to prevent me from getting those diseases overseas. And I think I'm probably pretty glad I did. I got sick when I was over there, but that was a stomach virus because I, I got stupid about eating one meal. I forgot to wipe down my banana leaf. <laughs> it was in India and they served it on a banana leaf. And I walked in and I saw a pallet sitting there that was almost empty with a new one behind it. And the new one behind it had banana leaves stacked up about six feet. And the one they were serving off of only had about eight inches left. So they were the old at the bottom of the stack. And I sat down to eat and I forgot to wipe down that banana leaf with my sanitizer. 
three days later, I couldn't get 10 feet away from the bathroom in the hotel room for about three days. <laughs> I digress. I'm, I'm not an anti-vaxxer in that sense. As far as I know, they've never done me any harm. But when I saw how many vaccines my granddaughter 10 years ago had to take, it was like four or five times as many as I had to take as a newborn. Oh, yeah. And then the later, the, the eight-year-old grandson came along two years later, and he had to take still more. Not many, maybe three or four more than what Amelie had, the, the daughter. I don't know how many, I don't think the younger one has had many because Leanne has, and John have kind of drawn a line in the sand and said, no more of this, you know. So they've had home birth with both of those kids and they pretty much managed the healthcare and done homeschooling to kind of stay off that radar. Not that they haven't given them some protection, but they have, you know, they're doing it later in their years as opposed to, you know, a squalling newborn being poked with 14 needles three times. So yeah. they're not anti-vax either, but they're just what I would call vaccination conservative or vaccination caution or something. And I share that because I have not had a flu vaccine. I have not had the pneumonia. I have not had the shingles. And so far, I'm not planning to get any one of those three. Which brings us to the COVID vaccine, if, when, it, when it is released. Along the lines of what Utopia's story and subtext was all about, with that in mind, there's information out there. It's not mainstream, but there's information out there that the contents of this vaccine include uh, nanoparticles, nano things, nanotech items. Uh, and if you remember back to Lynn Sweet's teaching about genetics, robotics, artificial intelligence, and nanotechnology, grain in yeah. his book. So isn't that so beautiful? It's um, Rings of Fire, the latest one. It's a whole chapter. And the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists identifies disruptive technologies as one of the things that has their doomsday clock set to 100 seconds today never been below two minutes before in its 75 year history now it's set to 100 seconds which means in in a very literal sense we live on a 100 second countdown and when you get from 100 down to nine, down to one it either goes to zero or it starts over and you're always within that 100 second countdown of doomsday according to the bulletin of the atomic scientists these guys aren't carnival barkers <laughs> you know yeah. i mean they aren't hucksters they aren't liars, they're scientists, and that's their assessment of the reality we're living in. And disruptive technologies is one of the three threats in the nexus of existential threats that they point to, nanotech being one of them, climate change and weapons of mass destruction being the other two. All of which is to say, when I think about this COVID vaccine and I look at the marginal information that's out there, there is a video of a supposedly highly certified OBGYN female physician who says the vaccine has this nanotechnology in it. It's got a couple of other things that are suspicious about it, but one of the main things is the nanotechnology. And the nanotech is a crystalline device. So it's a microscopic crystal artificially created that's included in the COVID-19 vaccine, supposedly. Here's where it really gets interesting. 
because there there's a leap from that internal crystal and what do crystals do that organic material at least overtly doesn't do they vibrate yeah they conduct wavelength frequencies like 5g okay okay so there's a leap from that internal transceiver of nanoparticles to the 5g network so that you both are transmitting all of your biometric data all of it into basically google because when you're in the internet of things you are owned by google right now google owns you know i mean we can pretend that we're in you know electronic frontier that's free we can pretend we're in a private space and we're in a safe space and all that horseshit but that's what it is it's horseshit if yeah. i'm not being monitored right now i'll buy you a boat <laughs> you know what i'm saying <laughs> i mean i'm being facetious of course i can't even buy myself a boat except when i can float in the bathtub that as it may i have every confidence that i don't i say nothing write nothing do nothing i go nowhere i am nowhere nobody no thing that isn't being monitored i yeah. mean the, the very idea of escape from that is is archaic i believe you know this is call me a conspiracy kook if you like but that's just where i think we are and uh, there's a lot of evidence to support that so on the covid-19 vaccine if we're being made into transceivers with those nanoparticles crystal nanoparticles injected into us and that puts us into a surveillance state that's not even a good description for it it makes us It, it turns surveillance inside out. You see what I'm saying? We're not just being watched from the outside. We will now be watched from the inside, and all of our data about us is is being transmitted out into the Internet of Things. Then I watched. <laughs> there was a uh, 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 bulletin. Atomic scientists did a Zoom session. I may have mentioned this in our previous episode, I don't recall, but they did a Zoom session where um, some key scientists were the, the, the interviewees on it, and there were like, I don't know, close to 100 people sitting in attendance, and they were medically discussing the mind-body frontier electronically, how they can implant something on the skull that can make that connection between your mental states and digital transmission of those mental states data about those mental and physical states because they can read the whole thing through the brain so there's and they were discussing this of course they were what I would call green wrapping it or greenwashing it in terms of healthcare right oh think how much good this would do uh, so anyway that's just one step away from the, the injection of the particles is then turns out in march this year i think it was march this year microsoft patented the connection from that data to cryptocurrency they have a patent that allows them to take that biometric data and connect it to cryptocurrency app that's going to be a microsoft app 
And I'm going, that's one hell of a three-step police state. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, well, no, I no. should say one hell, of, one hell of a corporatocracy totalitarianism. So anyway, that's kind of a long story, but it goes out to the margins of the conspiratorial perspective, while at the same time speaking directly to the issue of, I think, how much do you trust where we are today in the world we're in to give you a vaccination? You see what I'm saying? No, I totally get it. Um, it, it's it's an excellent question. It's something that people definitely have to um, consider. I'm. I mean, I guess I'm what I want to emphasize is, it's it's not it is a trust issue, but you can't really appreciate the the import or the impact or the gravitas of that question until you think about what it could be at stake. I mean, what could be at stake if even only the nearest parts of those wild ideas are actual and real and true? I'm sorry, I, I'll, I'll be quiet and let you respond. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying and everything. You know, while I'm watching that last episode and the, the lead baddie of season one in Utopias, Christy, he, he's, he gives his evil monologue you know, the, the trademark thing for everything, for every show that's ever existed. But he has a rationale and a logic to it that I can track with, which is scary. But at the same time, ah, uh, because everyone's afraid, oh, this vaccine's going to kill everybody. And then he says, no, it's not going to kill everybody. I value life. I don't want anybody to die from it. It's horrible. These people had to die from this pandemic. But the vaccine's not going to kill anybody. It's just going to prevent more births. And how he went around it with the whole climate crisis component to it and trying to reset where we're at before to, to try to stop the unsustainability, which we're creeping ever so much closer to. It's, it's an interesting argument and it's a logical argument and it's very convincing. That, that makes me wonder, okay, so so with the COVID-19 vaccine, it is a matter of trust. Do we trust the manufacturers and do we trust the FDA that if we're given a vaccine, that the benefits are going to outweigh the costs? And then what are the costs and are those costs something we can live with? And I guess if I was to, if I were to take the Jewish approach to it, um, we value life. Life is paramount. And life now takes priority over potential life later. And so if we are presented with, here's a vaccine that'll keep your kids alive, but there won't be any births. I definitely see where there'd be a lot of debate with rabbis about what's okay and what's not okay. But I think when it came down to the, the, the requirement to save a life within Jewish law, they would say, if there is a legitimate risk that people will die, such as COVID, for example, it's highly contagious and a quarter million Americans have died, right? If there's that risk and there's a vaccine that's highly effective against it, even if it means you may not be able to have kids later, you should take the vaccine now to save your life. But then I think others would say, 
well that's only if you're gonna guaranteed get it because what because you don't know if you're gonna get covid there can be a lot of bouncing back and forth within the jewish realm on what to do and what's right and i'm not a big rabbi i'm not a rabbi at all so i can't really say what it would come down to and what the ruling would be but i can see where that debate would come across and i feel that in a case like covid 19 where everything is so big and i mean everybody's getting it there's been so many people that have died and within the Jewish realm, a lot of people have died too. A lot of big time rabbis and it's, it's concerning. And in that regard, perhaps a vaccine, despite what risks it may be on quality of life, because of how likely it is to save a life, may be worth the risk. Mm, okay, all right. Um... I, well, I, I want to add, I sent you a link. I don't know if you looked at it yet or not. Uh, you said you were aware of it. There was a, a group of, uh, of Orthodox. The anti-mask issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes to the mask side of the discussion. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Community. So speak to that if you would. Sure thing. So on the topic of face masks, right? We We don't know how much face masks help, but we know that they help something. We just can't put our finger on how much they help but they reduce the risk. Can't tell you the percentage, but they reduce it. But it's enough of a reduction of risk where governments have mandated your face masks. In Oregon, face masks are required inside and outside if you're in it, if you're around other people. And that's, so like, I don't, even if you're walking through downtown, you gotta wear a face mask if there's gonna be other people on the sidewalk. That's the requirement for the state of Oregon right now. And we've seen where the benefit of face masks, if people wear face masks, it reduces the spread. It doesn't stop it, it reduces it. And the goal there is to save lives, not to prevent everybody from getting it. The concept is if all we're doing is face masks, you're gonna get COVID, but can we stall it so that we don't overwhelm the hospitals and then people are dying? And right now at the current infection rate we have in Oregon with people fighting the mask issue, we're looking at having the hospitals at max capacity at the beginning of December, which is scary. And Oregon's only on its second wave of COVID. The rest of the U.S. is starting to hit their third wave. And so there, there's what's going to happen with that. So in ties with the Jewish community, for example, the Jewish community here, we're taking this seriously. We're wearing face masks, we're keeping ourselves informed at synagogue. When I go to do my prayers, it's six feet away from everybody, face masks, everybody has to have them on, and we, we keep things as minimal as possible to reduce potential spread. Singing, that type of stuff is minimized, but there's still the risk. I mean, we we have 25, we allow 25 people to go into the building, and you see so you have 36 square feet to yourself, there's only 25 people in the whole building, and you're there for up to 45 minutes about unless it's like Shabbat or something like that, which is much longer, but the average every day is up to 45 minutes. So we're taking it seriously here. And I'm not I'm not trying to say that on the East Coast it's not being taken seriously. What I'm trying to highlight is a difference between the culture of West Coast Jews versus East Coast Jews. And the West Coast Jews, our culture is that of, we're, we're more modern, uh, we have technology and we pay attention to the news and we're connected on the internet. Whereas on the East Coast, it's a step back. A lot of individuals that you see that are participating with this mask burning campaign or these types of anti-mask initiatives, they don't have internet devices. And if they do, it's called a kosher phone, which allows them to access WhatsApp. And that's it because 
the Jewish community thrives off of WhatsApp to stay in contact with each other. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's amazing, but that's what we use. But for so, so they they have a need for WhatsApp. They can only get on a f- smartphone. So they get a smartphone that has everything blocked except WhatsApp calling and texting, and maybe email. So they don't have access to the internet, and so they're not aware of what's going on as far as social media influence and internet influence and news media influence. The only influence they have is what's in their community, and they have their own newspaper publications, their own community circulars. And so, really, what it comes down to is what are the rabbis telling them, and then what are the rabbis hearing? How how aware are they to what's going on around them as well? And then when you get into more of the Hasidic communities, they're very inclusive or very exclusive. They're very small. They're it's a little commune, more or less. Not not trying to compare it to a cult, but it's really they live amongst themselves as their own mini society, and they don't worry about the outer society, and they try to avoid that influence. And so, when you have a governor and a mayor come in, who historically have done things that have upset the Orthodox community, and say, "Now you need to wear masks." Oh, and by the way, I know your high holidays tomorrow. We're closing your synagogue. And you don't understand why, and they're like, "Well, there's this virus," and you're like, "What do you mean?" Now that happened in the that happens in the spring, and then so many people got it, and at that point in the summer, like, you know what? So many people here have got it. We must have herd immunity by now. We, we must be fine, and they're discovering herd immunity apparently doesn't exist. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's, it's a great lesson for everybody in that we're not going to have a herd immunity option without a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. which I guess leans to the necessity of it. But when you're dealing with the face masks and everything, it's a lack of awareness and a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge on that community because they're, they're not clued in and they, they keep themselves separate. It's a whole be sanctified. Mm -hmm. Their, their level of sanctification is to stay away from the world that influences and drags people down. So while I, I, I appreciate how they come about it, but then you have the negative reports in the media that happen as a result because of that lack of knowledge and the, the media doesn't say oh well these people don't know this they just say oh look what the jews are doing mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it's it's a complicated situation should they have burned masks no that was incredibly stupid and they they should have known all oh, the optics of this is going to make jews look bad yeah so but i i understand their concern about the government if they don't know that COVID-19 is a real issue or a real threat and they think that they're immune and then the governor's coming down and saying you can't do your Jewish life and when that went in the press conference when the governor announced oh all the synagogues are closed he holds up a picture of all these orthodox Jews huddled together in a big celebration and that picture is from 10 years ago and he's saying this is the problem that we're having and this is why COVID's spreading but it's from 10 years ago and it's not today to me that's anti-semitic it was, that's targeting uh, let me ask you you said the picture from 10 years ago is that picture that was with the article i sent you is that a 10 year old picture no that's a recent picture i'm saying okay. the the article or not the article but the press release the governor came out with ah, that said okay. face masks you have to have them no synagogue services you can't do this you can't do that and and he's saying we're having covid increase and here's why. And he's holding up a picture from 10 years ago. That's not fact. That's not logic. That's not science in any way. I mean, you can't say, "Oh, well, this picture from 10 years ago is why covid's spreading now." 
yeah that's that's it's uh, propaganda it's manipulation of the truth yeah and that's the issue that's the issue is the community there all they know is the governor doesn't like jews and they're he's manipulating things and so they think oh well he's anti-semite and he doesn't like us and he's using propaganda and so we should stand up against this and say this is not right right it's interesting how this takes us to a theme i guess it's from earlier this week one of the uh, not one of the earlier episodes we did just in the last week or two where i was talking about the uh, emergence of a christian fascist theocracy with a number of federal judges, with Pence, with Barrett on the Supreme Court, and the list just goes on and on of the alt-right fascist Christian rise that Chris Hedges has been warning about in his book, The American Fascist. He called them the alt-right Christians, the American fascists. And their rise to power is not debatable. I mean, there's, I would go so far as to say, I don't know, other than corporations or than the PACs that are run by the corporations, I don't know of any other demographic that is sitting on top of as much power in the American government today than the alt-right Christian fascist group. Yeah. And that's pretty scary, especially today. <laughs> oh, it's very scary. Well, I mean, I'm talking not, not only as a Jew, but also an ex-Christian. It's very scary. Yeah. As, as, even notwithstanding the outcome of the POTUS election, whoever ends up being president, Biden or Trump, the corporatocracy is going to still be the power behind the, yeah. the, the, the uh, running the Oval Office and every other branch of government and every seat in every branch of government. But I could go on there. But not only is the corporatocracy going to things will just go right on according to that corporatocracy agenda. But the implementation of that corporate corporatocracy agenda under a Trump administration would be different, sort of, than it would be under Biden. It's almost like the difference between being put in house, house arrest versus being actually put in chain link cages. You, the difference in your rights is not, there's no difference in where your rights have gone. They're gone. You're just a little more comfortable if you're lost <laughs> sitting in your house. You see what I'm saying? Uh, and a little more able to convince yourself that it's the right thing to have happen. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. if it goes to the other extreme, they will just well biden is no stranger to butchery in the streets i mean he's uh, according to some sources anyway he's been responsible for more law enforcement militarization and brutality than any other white man since i don't know who do you want to pick simon mcgree <laughs> i mean uh, so it really in many respects doesn't matter which way it goes it's just going to kind of influence whether we're going to be bled to death or shot between the eyes. You know what I mean? It's those kinds of non-differences that make no difference. Yeah. So with all of that, it, it, these things are so interconnected at so many levels. How can we expect the ordinary blue collar, white working class 
people of color, people of whatever gender, pick your demographic, how can we expect any kind of common shared understanding of truth and reality, semiotically speaking, to be communicated, understood, and reasonably, not even analytically, scientifically, rationally, but just common sense reasonably for civil purposes, understood as what it is to be a human alive in this time, in truth and reality. How do we get that back? Because it used to be here, I think. It was, I, I know this much, it was a lot clearer what that truth and reality was in my childhood and my young adulthood than it is today for my grandchildren. So that it's that loss, and it goes to the thing I mentioned in our last episode about faith being the will to believe, it's the loss of that freedom of the will to believe that is the most terrifying reality and truth of the times we're in, as far as I'm concerned. And if it, going back a step or two to where we were talking about the vaccine and the nanoparticles in it making us transceivers, but we don't control the communication anymore. If that's what's happening, then there is no free will to believe at that point. It's gone because the semiotic engineering is being done from the inside out, which means you believe it before you know you've even thought about it. If they want to do it that way, they have the technology to do it if that's where that's going. And as a semiotician, that just, I mean, it gives me chills sitting here now just imagining that that's how far gone freedom is under this corporatocracy. Am I just being a paranoid lunatic conspiracist here, conspiracy kook? Or is there- Just a teensy bit. Um, <laughs> no, I, I get what you're saying, and it's really easy to go down that rabbit hole. Um, I could do that very easily. I have to hold back and not go that far because I have to go back to constructs that are within my worldview. One of them being is that free will is absolute. And so if Hashem's running the universe and free will is one of the required components for the universe to continue to function and run, then things that get in the way of free will will be routed or will be undone so that free will can exist. And I know that 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 borders the line of, well, now you're just trying to play the religion card. I'm not trying to do that. What I'm trying to say is that the the way Hashem within a Jewish framework runs the world is that we have absolute free will. And if we make the choice out of absolute free will to take away free will, we've changed the rules to the game. And so Hashem in turn is going to change the rules to the game to make free will exist again because that's a component that's required for Torah is that we have to freely choose to follow Torah. I get, I get that. And I, and I, as a Christian, I have no dispute with it. Uh, I will say for both of us, philosophically, the question of free will is not a settled issue, <laughs> but that's yeah. just the philosophical side. And, but you raise the interesting point from where I sit, which is, with free will, can we freely choose to not have free will? I mean, and that's more than just a semantic quibble. Because who, let's say 
in the 1960s or 70s, before in the pre-internet, pre-PC world, you know, when computers were leased mainframes that came from IBM or some other vendor selling something else. I mean, that's how big IBM's home was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It only changed after that. If someone then had said, you know, a day is going to come when you're going to be perfectly happy, excited, and eager to share every detail about your private life with the entire world, and in fact, you'll be willing to put it on camera and broadcast it to the world when you're taking a dump yeah, or whatever. How many people would have said, yeah, that's really going to happen? <laughs> Most people would have said, that's absurd. And yeah. yet, what does Facebook yeah. do? Well, it's not just Facebook. It's all social media. It's, it's, it's definitely there. Media. I get it. And we've rushed into it just like lemmings over a cliff. And what are we doing? Yeah. We're giving up our privacy willingly. And if, if this kind of far out idea of semiotic engineering through nanoparticles injected by the vaccine, semiotic engineering of your mental states is a plausible possibility, which those scientists, the bulletin of the atomic scientists in that conference call about doing exactly that, they acknowledge that it's technologically possible. <laughs> if you allow that device to be implanted in, you know, it doesn't drill into your brain. It just kind of sits on top next to the skull. But that's all you need because that's uh, that carries the wavelengths. If it's on your skull or even in a bone anywhere in your body, the wavelengths can be transmitted and received into and out of your body. So technologically, it's real. Yeah. Now, will we rush? Head, we're rushing headlong into virtual reality. We are. What is so that? please give me a reality other than the one that's real, please. I'm so hungry for that and despairing for not having it. I'll take it and pay you to give it to me. Counterpoint. I, mean? I, I get what you're saying. Here's a counterpoint. Okay. Uh, the the movies, I don't know how old. It's not an old movie. It's a recent movie, but in the realm of today's social media age, it's ancient of days old, meaning that it's at least five years old. Um, <laughs> Eternal Sunshine on the Spotless Mind. I've watched that. I've watched that. I love it. That was a great movie. Uh, that's right yeah that's the counterpoint um spoilers for this one is this whole it revolves around this clinic he, he he has a relationship the relationship gets toxic the girlfriend has her memories of him erased so then he gets his memories of her erased and then they meet each other and they don't know each other and then they start dating and then they start there they start finding out that they were together beforehand but they had the memories erased and the the end result is this clinic ending up needing to be shut down that does memory erasing now there's a lot more to it it's a fascinating thing to watch but it brings about this story of could we free out of free will could we choose to give up free will and then what would be done to undo that choice to give up free will is that's what happens in that story itself right because when we give up when we when we make the choice okay i'm giving this up but then we no longer know why we gave it up because we're, we're living without it now, and then we fight to have it back. Do we, though? I, I think that in, in regards to free will, we, we would. Do we fight to have it back if we've lost it? 
Have we lost it? And if we have, are we fighting to get it back? I think that we still have free will. There, there's areas in which propaganda and marketing is, it's made it obvious that decisions are being made without thought process. But we still have free will in in so much that we have different religions that have different perspectives, and those religions can still exist today, and somebody can still choose to observe that religion. I think that that's a good example of how free will does exist. If somebody no, wants no, to be an no, atheist, no. they can. I, I, I got I to gotta put a hitch in your good lawn there. <laughs> uh, let's not conflate the single case of free will, the one that's inside my head. Let's not, and, and the single case of free will that's inside your head, let's not conflate those with common um, shaping of our world in collective free will, okay? Because it's very important not to blur that distinction, I think. Collective free will depends on your tribe. There's not much free will when you're part of a tribe because you function as a tribe. Right. If that answers your question. It kind of does because along the lines of what you were saying, the reason we don't really think when we exercise that free will anymore is because we have fostered, deliberately or not, I think it's been deliberately engineered and fostered, but that's a separate point. The fact is it's real, a world in which the flashpoint of our freedom of our will as a single case is emotion. That's the triggering mechanism. I will believe this because it makes me by God feel good. Oh, wow, that's so, um, that's so revivalist of you. <laughs> Well, no, I'm not saying I'm being facetious. I mean, I, I. But that was the revivals. Yeah, yeah. The Second Great Awakening in America focused on bringing emotion back. Before the Second Great Awakening, Christianity was for the intellectuals, mm -hmm. and then this wave of emotionalism rushed through America, and now you have the Holy Rollers. Well, now. You be careful there. There's a slippery slope there, and emotionalism <laughs> is is. down that slope. I mean, it depends on your realistic view of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the being slain in the Spirit, uh, the, the what what Sweet himself refers to as the transincarnational, transductive, right connection to the divine. Uh, but that's not our will. We can't will that into being. That's God's will overriding our will, according to my understanding of those Pentecostal charismatic events and experiences. So somewhere in that mix of that transcendental, transductive, transincarnational connection to the divine at the divine's will, okay, and emotionalism, I, there's a difference in the two categories of experience, and it's a categorical difference. I think both are real, and certainly I think the prosperity gospel has set the reality apart from the profitability of the emotionalism. <laughs> yeah. you know, so, I certainly agree with that. Within, within, this is a bit Kabbalistic, okay? And Kabbalistic is just a mystical end that people don't understand too much. But there, there's two parts to you you have 
your Yetzer Hara and your Yetzer To. You have your inclination towards evil and your inclination towards good. Because you have a duality of a soul within you. You have your you have your goof, which is your body, and then your neshama, which is Hashem's spirit within you, in a way, that's uh, holy light. And the on earth, it's about taming the animal side, which is your base emotions and base needs, and ruling it with the spiritual side, which is I'll I'll eat to sustain my ability to study and pray more, but I'm not going to get lost in gluttony. Or I, I will sleep so that I don't get sick, but I'm not going to get lost in lethargy and those different types of things. And so you have this constant pulling back and forth on, am I giving into my animal side? Is my animal soul making the decisions for me? Or is my heavenly soul making the decisions for me? And the way it's, de- the way it's described in uh, Tanya, which is a Kabbalistic work by the Hasidisha um, roots, is that the animal soul is one that goes off of base desire and emotion and the spiritual soul is one that makes a decision based off logic and implication meaning if if we know okay i'm not going to eat this ice cream because it's not going to be good for me and then it's going to cause me these issues down the road in regards to me serving hashem so i don't do that We've allowed the heavenly soul to take control versus by golly i'm eating that ice cream because that feels good then we've allowed the animal soul to take control and it's this constant back and forth and there's different ways each side can express itself but it's that bad it's that battle between good and evil within oneself and so when i'm when i'm referring to emotionalism we're allowing our emotions to make the decisions instead of our brains which is which essentially you're saying it's the animal side versus the spiritual side that is taking over free will. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I think we just described the 21st century. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I mean, no doubt about that. They, it, we just described the 21st century for the powers that are ruling the world. Well, that's why and there's we no just sense described sense. the 21st century for the other 99% of us as their indentured, raw, human, commodified resources. Well, there's that, but also our common thing of, oh, everyone's afraid to be offended and, oh, I need a safe space. Mm-hmm. This is all giving into the emotionalism and the animal side of, I can't handle, I can't cope, so I won't. But God made us resilient. He gave us bodies that heal. He didn't have to do that. And so we can heal on the inside too we can be offended and get over it we just don't want to be oh no i know i know and that trust me we're on the same page in terms of these safe spaces it's made me change my language i rarely use the phrase passive aggression again because you don't really get the meaning of that unless you flip it aggressive passivity I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but when you turn that around, now you get a sense of what's really going on. It's still aggressive. It's just mm-hmm. kind of non-verbally so. Semiotics are yeah. even more powerful because it's non-verbal. It just kind of takes over the narrative without speaking. <laughs> it's yeah. nefarious, insidious. And the very idea in this world, this time, this truth and reality globally, the very concept of anything resembling a safe space is absurd on its face. 
So, I mean, wrapping this into our larger conversation that we're having, I do not subscribe to the, I'm going to call it a conspiracy theory. I do not subscribe to the conspiracy theory that us wearing face masks is a way of the government testing us to see how much of a sheep we can be. I think that COVID's real. I had it. Um, it's contagious. It spreads very quickly. We've determined now that it's aerosolized so it can spread and it can hover in the air for hours. It can live off somebody's skin for nine hours. We know that it's highly contagious and we know that it's mutating and we know that people do die. And so I think that face masks is not, ooh, let me see if I can control you by having you wear something over your face. I think it is, it's a reasonable request to save a life. Because it may not be your life you're saving, but if you go and if it's on your skin or if you're asymptomatic and you go into the store or let's say you go into the store and then it ends up on your skin and then it's on your skin so it goes to the next place with you or the next store and then it spreads to somebody else and eventually down the road it kills somebody i would feel liable and so the, the concept of face masks and then doing the hand washing and sanitizing to me that's just the very basic minimum what can i do to, to potentially save a life it's the basic rule of being a civil person in this pandemic. I mean, it's, that's what to me, the word, the notion of civil, I like. Because I can be civil and still have my First Amendment rights of free speech. You yeah. Know? And if I want to not be civil, I can still exercise my right of free speech. I'm just not good company. <laughs> yeah. Now, to the, to the conspiracy side of that, I don't... It's, I always struggle when we talk about conspiracy because one of one of the two great mentors in my intellectual development as an adult, Jim Fetzer, is a he's he's vilified for his conspiracy views. The academic community has basically completely ostracized and shunned him because of his conspiracy views. The thing <laughs> is, he doesn't do just conspiracy theory. He does conspiracy science. Yeah. In other words, if he, if he looks at a conspiracy theory, he takes it apart scientifically from his view on the philosophy of science, which is empirical, historical, and philosophical. And and I, he and I, I don't go that far down that path with him. I think I have other explanations for the same events that he attributes to malevolent, malicious conspiracy. It's not that I don't think there are malevolent, malicious conspiracies behind them. Let's take mass shooting. He thinks many of those are false flags. And he's been sued and uh, is civil action against him by one of the parents of a kid at Sandy Hook. And the judgment went against him for $450,000. Now it's on appeal, but that's how far he takes this stuff. I think false flag may have been for a while a mechanism used by the state? Yes, I believe that. I mean, there are persuasive arguments that the Gulf of Tonkin was a false flag, that Pearl Harbor was a false flag, and the sinking of the Maine that's in Cuba that started World War I or the Spanish-American War. My history's a little vague right there. But anyway, I believe there have been historical false flag events. Do I think that's what every mass shooting is? No. I'm inclined to think that it got more sophisticated and something more like the Manchurian candidate approach came into play. 
the Lee Harvey Oswald Patsy approach came into play. The Sirhan Sirhan Patsy approach came into play. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I get that. So to me, that's a more plausible because it would be a more manageable approach. It's not more conscious, you know, it's not better conscience, it's not less evil. It's just practically more easily implemented. <laughs> Wouldn't cost yeah. as much to do it that way as it would to do false flag again. Anyway, I digress, yeah. and we're, we're, we're well into an hour here. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and wrap up our conversation a bit on this vaccine component here. Okay. Um, in regards to vaccines in general, you mentioned you don't, you don't do the flu shot or any of these different shots. I, I will admit up, up front, there are way too many shots for giving kids. I'm not a doctor, so I can't get into which shot's necessary and which shot isn't. But I'd say in that regard, I'm going to have to go and trust my doctor because I've chosen that they're the expert that I'm going to hear their voice on. And I think everybody has to make that their own decision in regard to that. But I know that I personally get the flu shot every year because the years I don't get it, I'm usually really sick with the flu. <laughs> and it, it could be that the two aren't connected. But for me, it's one of those because I have a compromised immune system, when I get sick, I get sick worse and I'm out for a while. The last time I had the flu, I was out for over a week. Mm -hmm. And so I'd rather not get the flu as a result because to me, it's a more serious illness than for somebody else who's like, oh, I got the flu, I'll be good in three days. I so yeah. I do it because of that, because to me, the, con the benefits of the shot definitely outweigh the consequences for me personally. Uh -huh. My own history, going personally on it, my own history with the flu, just taking that as an example, is, and as recently as when I lived in Federal Way working with World Vision, there's a medication, Tamiflu, which is a prescription medication, and that works wonderfully for me. If I catch it early enough, and I know my flu symptoms almost, in, 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 the instant they emerge, I know the first little headache, I know that's a flu symptom. And when actually the first symptom, I'm 99% sure, I still have my tonsils. I've never had them out. And if I catch a flu bug, it starts on one of my tonsils with an itch. Uh, it's almost like there's a little piece of something stuck in there that doesn't hurt, but it's just kind of an, it, just an itch. And within 24 hours, I'm gonna have a serious headache and then my throat's gonna start and then the rest of the symptoms start showing up. So if I catch the Tamiflu with that headache and just about the time that headache's starting to intensify and fade, if I, catch, if I take the Tamiflu in that period, knocks it out every time, within a day or two, it kills it. So I haven't had to do that since I lived in Federal Way. I haven't had a flu since I've been in Florida and I haven't had a flu shot. So for me, now this is where we get down to the single case again. Your genetic makeup and your medical history as a single medical case through time are such that the vaccine probably is a benefit for you, apparently is a benefit for you. But that doesn't mean that for me, Tamiflu is not the right solution. You see what I'm saying? It's well, I get what you're saying. Historical and genetic differences, I think, at the single case level, kind of way should be weighed and factored in. When I walk into a, far, a, a CVS to buy a, a pack of Tic Tacs, and they're saying, if you had your flu shot, we'll give you 10 bucks to get your flu shot. Not gonna do it. 
to quote George W., I'm not going to do it. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, same thing. My doctor, we finally have got, have a primary care physician that I really like. She she will ask me once, have you had your flu shot for the season? I'll say no. And she will never bring it up again. She knows where I stand on that one. And yeah. she never, she I haven't heard to see her you know, more than just my six month checkups, you know. Uh, so all of that to say, to wrap it up, it's always, I think, good advice to think in two, dualism is so pervasive, like you were talking about the good, evil, spiritual, physical side of our souls, or at least our inclinations. Uh, it's always good to think there are at least two sides to everything. And when you're talking statistics, you know, because 99.99 dot 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 percent of medical science is based on statistical analysis. Yeah. It's always good to remember that the statistical scientific model that we rely on is 300 years old. It's Bayesian to its core. Okay. And its ability scientifically to distinguish between accidental correlations or spurious correlations and genuinely causal connections doesn't exist. That distinction cannot be reliably drawn. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't be the histor the history of what's happened, which is all you get with Bayesian statistics, can't be used to predict and speculate and project into the future it's just hit or miss okay uh, i've got a whole book of spurious correlations that you would be just astonished to realize there's a statistical correlation between these two things one is like uh timing of moonshots to deaths by suicidal hanging in appalachia <laughs> you know it's just weird shit like that but they're 90 yeah. percent statistically correlated i mean it's weird but anyway that dualism between the single case as a probabilistic reality, there's a probability that if I go into an ice cream shop, I'm going to pick chocolate. It's very high. And it's not has nothing to do with history. It has to do with my predispositions. Okay? You were talking about inclinations. That's a predisposition to go one way yes. or another. There's a very small, but still very real, chance that I'll pick vanilla or strawberry or pistachio or, you know, pick another flavor. But chocolate is the stronger disposition. Those are single case matters. And when you start saying, okay, next person who walks through the door of this shop, what is the probability they're going to pick chocolate? Well, that's a historical description based on a lot of events taken in aggregate, right? Yeah. All of that to say, and I didn't mean to go on so long, I have developed a habit over decades, thanks to Fetzer and his scientific philosophy, to always think of both whenever statistics is in, in the argument. Think of yes. that single case, me and you. And then if we not want to, let's put that single case in the context of the aggregate Bayesian statistical models that we've done all this calculus stuff with in the 300 years since. Because if you forget the single case, 
things like, oh, let's say free will start disappearing. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. Um, I get that. I get what you're saying with statistics. In regards to COVID-19, we're gonna wrap this back to the vaccine part yeah. so our, to, to bring a conclusion with them. In regards to the, the COVID-19 vaccine that's being developed by these different companies, um, I'll, I'll share my thought behind this and I want you to share a thought and then I'm gonna give one last thing to it, okay? Mm-hmm. Is I do think it's necessary to develop a vaccine. We need We need a vaccine that is effective and works and if there is a vaccine that's effective and works and saves lives then i do feel like there's a moral obligation on everybody to get the vaccine i don't feel the government can mandate that but i feel like each person has to make that moral choice themselves so that being said if a vaccine came out tomorrow would you get it oh you're actually gonna put me on the spot I am because I'm going to ask myself the same question or have you asked me that question right after you answer. <laughs> well, I'll leave it up to you to answer. I'll show a tad more respect for your privacy than you will for mine, but I, that doesn't matter to me because I would happily go publicly. I will not um, because of the trust issue. And it isn't whether or not I trust my doctor. I do trust yeah. my doctor and I trust that she will not require me to have it no matter what happens. I've had this conversation with her, not about the COVID, but about the flu and the shingles and the pneumonia and all the other. Yeah, yeah. I trust her to just let me have my exercise of free will on the issue. Um, and I will not do it. Not because I don't trust the healthcare and medical community so much as I don't trust the medical pharmaceutical insurance industrial complex because they're doing a vaccine for profit. I don't give a shit what its heal rate is. I don't give a shit what its protection rate is. They're doing it for one reason, profit. And I don't trust that. You make a valid point and that even ties in with Utopia and other other concepts out there in regards to vaccines. Um, I will tell you, if a COVID vaccine came out tomorrow, I would not get it. Interesting. And that, and that is not because of the profit model. That's because it's not going to work. There is, I I don't care what equations they come up with. It's impossible to have a effective vaccine tomorrow. It's impossible to have a, an effective vaccine in 2020. It may be impossible in 2021. And my reasoning is simply this. If the doctor cannot tell me if my antibodies provide immunity and the doctor cannot tell me how long these antibodies will last, how the hell do you know that vaccine's gonna work and how the hell do you know that's gonna last? There's no long-term studies. Yep. And you're basing it off of what you, information you don't know is the issue. With the polio vaccine, it's like, okay, we, we have information here. Pe- people who get polio typically don't get it again. So if we give a vaccine that sufficient that teaches the body that as if it's had polio, we know they're most likely not going to get it. They have the history. They have the studies. They don't have this for COVID-19 because they still, like when I go to Red Cross and they take the plasma from me to study it, they're saying, we're taking this from you to study it because we have no idea what to do about it. We don't know if this is going to work at all. We don't know 
what to do with these antibodies, but we need more antibodies to study them so we can hopefully figure it out someday. Yeah, yeah. And how how can you have a vaccine if the basis of an immunity is based off the antibodies of somebody who's had it when you don't know if those antibodies provide even the smallest degree of immunity? Yeah, that's an even more practical wisdom than my conspiratorial wisdom. <laughs> so I, I guess what I'm saying is the science doesn't back up a vaccine at this time. And I don't think it will for at least a year or two because we just don't know. Does it become an annual shot we have to get? We don't know. We, I mean, every time I go into Red Cross, like, let's see if you have antibodies again. We don't know when they fade. And, and so it's, there's just, and we know some people that have had COVID, smaller cases, they get it again, and it's a more severe case, like chickenpox almost. We just don't know. There's so much we don't know that I can't trust a vaccine from a pharmacy at this point because it's just a matter of trying to stop mass hysteria and make money on the side. That's all it is at this point. If I if, if the vaccine came out tomorrow, it's to stop the panic and to make money. There's there's no science involved. There's science involved in trying to create a vaccine, but to have a functioning vaccine tomorrow is not scientific. I totally agree with you. And I say that as a philosopher of science, as a science practitioner, I, I was a computer scientist, AI scientist. I mean, I, and I totally agree with you. That is, I would go so far as to say, an even more rational argument than the one I was given. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, because, for instance, you, how did you put it? You said um, twofold to deal with the hysteria and to make a profit on the side. Yeah, I, th my spin on that would be make a profit by managing the hysteria. <laughs> and that that's oh, kind of spins it a little differently. You see what I'm saying? It's just a matter of spin, though. It's the same semiotics, just spun a little differently or in a different way. It definitely is. So let I'll, me I'll suggest, leave. You. Let me suggest since yeah. we've run so long, I'll leave it in your hands to edit this maybe into two episodes. Psh, not going to happen. They're hearing all this. Okay. <laughs> Take it or leave it, right? I'm fine with that. I lost your audio. Lost your audio. Did you lose mine? Oh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. I okay. lost about 10 Sorry, seconds. Sorry. Okay, that's only 10 seconds. All right. So in the Trump campaign, a website was released. And one of the things that he accomplished in his first four years is that he beat the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> if you're talking about managing hysteria, I think that's the icing on the cake right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Depends on what, manage it to what end. Yeah. So, I mean, in the end, I'm gonna, I, my, my approach is a vaccine. We're not remotely close to a thing. But I think that that's something that a conversation needs to happen when we do have enough information, enough science to develop an effective vaccine to save lives. In regards to face masks, by all means, we should do face masks. There's no mind control thing in my face mask that's making decisions for me. All it is doing is helping reduce my risk and it's helping reduce the risk of others. And that's the that's the bare minimum I can do. It's a civil thing to do. And that's why I do it. Because, I, and, I, and you know, it's it's common interest. You know, I respect your health. Why don't you respect mine and put a mask on? It's, yeah. it's better for you in Portland than it is here in Florida, trust me. It's totally yeah. optional here. It's totally optional. No, no, no doubt. But, you know, that's, that's how it is sometimes.
yeah, it's become a political issue. I don't know why, but it has become a political issue. So, okay, brother. Thank you for this conversation. Amen to that. Thank you. Send questions, comments, and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com. Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yedbrook and Semiocity. They answer Semitic questions via Semiog analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin.